If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. I expect that in the, the coming months this summer, before the, count, the, the fiscal year is over, that we will have voted on this bill, as well the infrastructure bill, as well as voted on the budget rec- uh, uh, resolution. And that's when they'll, but if only one comes to me, I'm not, if, if this is the only thing that comes to me, I'm not signing it. Wow, uh, danger, uh, Will uh, Robinson. Uh-oh, <laughs> oh, bump, call bump the office. The, bumping the infrastructure road here, cracking the bridge. Big you got any hole. others? Uh, um, yeah, let's okay, clown the, yeah, we, the definite 20-foot pothole. We just we can lost beat the this station into wagon the ground. Here. Mike Murphy, good to see you, brother. And guess good what? Good to see you. We have... The perfect person to discuss all of these developments, uh, veteran, uh, veteran of many national campaigns, including some I was involved in, veteran of the White House, the uh, creator of the precision media firm, a behemoth astride the Washington environment there, Stephanie Cutter, and, and future Emmy Award winner, if, <laughs> if if America comes to its senses, and we exactly. have a message for the if, Emmy voters a little later. Wake uh, up, yes. We, okay. we have a vast Hollywood uh, uh, listenership, so we're going to throw the weight of Hacks on Tap behind an Emmy situation a little later. Because Stephanie Cutter uh, produced, in my view, uh, a convention uh, a virtual convention that w- revolutionized political conventions and dragged them from the 19th century into the 21st century uh, in a way that was really noteworthy. And hopefully the Emmy people will note that and we'll talk more about that later. But infrastructure. Yeah, here we are. We we are stumbling a little. Let, well, why don't we do a quick recap for the normal people who listen who aren't obsessed with the Kremlinology of this day to day. So I'll do the quick recap, and you guys correct my malaprops and mistakes here. But fundamentally, Jeez, we have we only a, have an hour. For <laughs> yeah, yeah. From you, I take this abuse. Um, <laughs> okay, so a bunch of Republicans got involved. A bunch of Democratic senators negotiated with Biden. They came up with a eight-year trillion point two plan for the kind of hard infrastructure that's most popular: bridges, roads, uh, I- internet, water, etc. And then the president, under pressure from his progressives, to wait a minute, don't go make some trillion-dollar infrastructure deal to Republicans. If you don't have a commitment, you're going to pass the multi-trillion-dollar, the Democrats would say, social justice and badly needed uh, human infrastructure bill. The Republicans would say, welfare boondoggle. 
And now lightning bolts are being thrown. The Republican senators appear to be back on board because President Biden said, no, 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 I I gave my word, I'll pass it standalone. And the progressives are saying, wait a minute, we're not going to get hustled here. And Mitch McConnell's throwing gasoline on the whole fire. That would yeah, be that, my that was quick good, take. man. That was yeah, good. All right, there we go. Good dramatization of uh, <laughs> of what's going on here, Stephanie. You and I have been backstage many times when candidates were speaking at press conferences and so on. And every once in a while, something happens where you just look at each other and say, "Holy shit, this is a problem." <laughs> uh oh. Yeah, and uh, this this was one of those, um, and. So what was your what was your reaction when you watched all of this unfold? Well, actually, David, you and I were talking that day, uh, watching it together. And we both said, how is Mitch McConnell ever going to be for something like this if Joe Biden is putting down an ultimatum that he's only going to move infrastructure if he can get the other yeah. larger bill done? But when I heard Biden say that, uh, you know, I did say, holy shit. Um, and the speed at which they w- moved to try to fix it uh, told me that that was not a planned talking point. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> In fact, on your McConnell point, we got a little snippet of McConnell, who was on the floor of the Senate literally within minutes, minutes. of Biden saying what he said. But alas, that optimism was short-lived. Less than two hours after publicly commending our colleagues and actually endorsing the bipartisan agreement, the president took the extraordinary step of threatening to veto it. It was a tale of two press conferences, endorsed the agreement in one breath and threatened to veto it in the next. McConnell hasn't even endorsed this bill himself, and yet he's uh, he's already uh, crying crocodile tears about the uh, uh, about this misbegotten uh, uh, scheme and so on. Well, yeah, but but Biden gave him an easy shot. Oh, no question. He, he dunked the ball. You know, I mean, he'd have to be a, a, a block of granite not to figure that out. But go ahead. What was your? No, no. But I mean, it's my point is, I think Mitch McConnell would be just he'd be happy if the thing uh, went down destroyed by you know where he could pick he could portray it as being destroyed by the left because in a sense yes everybody wants the infrastructure but if biden gets this done this is a big thing for biden right i mean he campaigned on the idea that he could work with the republicans uh and this would be evidence of that that doesn't help mcconnell whose fundamental goal is to elect republicans and defeat democrats yeah, I, I think Mitch is looking at a fork in the road and smiling. You know, I can I can hear him almost hitting the intercom button. Jasper, bring in a martini because <laughs> things are looking pretty good. This is a, you know, an, a, a Dems have set him up. On one hand, they can go ahead and they don't have the Republican votes yet. There's some controversy in the Republican Party about this because some Republicans say, look, a big bipartisan infrastructure deal, I mean, just talking about the politics of it, is really good for a president of any flavor. So this is good for Biden. Good for Biden is bad for us. So why are we for this thing again? And then people say, well, we got to show the world we can do it. The country needs infrastructure. And all these Pauls live a life where the phone's ringing with the local people, the Pauls in their state all want it of either party, most places. So one path for McConnell where he thinks he wins is – 
yeah, Biden gets a win here, but my guys can cut ribbons. Now we have something to say we got done and we can go back to total warfare on the big social spending, which is our natural thing. And we think we can win that fight. Let's have it. The other route for him is the Democrats in their fight between their Trotskyites and their Mensheviks blow up a beautiful infrastructure bill, a crown of bipartisanship that I, Mitch McConnell, have worked so hard for, and they get to watch the Senate in crocodile tears. And politically, that works pretty well, too. So either way, McConnell can see a win here. I think some members of his caucus, the most hardcore politicos, are like, no, blow the whole thing up. Others really want to be able to go out and say, you know, they've done something. I mean, this thing, this infrastructure bill reminds me of the old joke of I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out because they want to fight over the big social stuff. The Democrat left and center with some concerns wants to, wants the programs. Biden wants them. The Republicans want to oppose them. It's a classic liberal conservative brawl. It's very normal, but there's, I think enough of them with some Republicans to agree on a classic infrastructure bill. So that's where we were. But now McConnell is more than happy to reinforce any Biden errors. And I think as, uh, you know, we were talking about uh, they, the Biden guys bounced off it as quick as they can. I think Rashetti, yeah. you know, set a land speed record running to the Capitol and did a pretty good job of firefighting. But now the progressives are threatening and McConnell's just going to cackle and buy popcorn. Yeah, Stephanie, you know, um, I said when this whole thing started that, Ultimately, because people are saying, well, can he strike a deal with Republicans? Uh, the big negotiation is between Democrats. Right. And that's right. just beginning right now. And you can see uh, that, you know, the progressives are watching uh, Mansion and Cinema, and they're saying, well, wait a second. We got decisive votes here, too. We can be the deciding votes. Why do they get all the leverage? Yeah. Well, I mean, reality bites. <laughs> <laughs> and the reality here is that Mansion and Cinema are not going to be, uh, at least right now, for a six trillion dollar uh, human infrastructure bill. It's going to take some time to figure out what exactly they will be for. Mansion opened the door to it over the weekend yeah. on a yeah, Sunday show, um, and said that if we can't get something done, he'd be open to reconciliation. But he's not going to be for a multi-trillion dollar uh, bill. They're going to have to work on it. So that is a that door that swung open should be taken seriously because they're not going to get it done otherwise. Yeah, well, swung open is a little bit uh, of an overstatement. He opened it to about two trillion dollars length. It yeah. didn't open all the way. Yeah, and that's the point. I mean, the point is that uh, that you can't get this infrastructure bill without progressives, and progressives can't get their reconciliation bill without Manchin. Mm -hmm. And this has been the flaw all along when people say, well, screw the Republicans, let's do it ourselves. You, I've said this before here. We talked about this last week when Murphy wasn't here. Murphy was, I think, doing his uh, Vegas uh, nightclub act last week and wasn't here. But uh, it shows a week. <laughs> yeah. Try the veal. But anyway, um, you know, this is the reality that uh, they need each other, and there is there aren't fifty votes without Mansion and Cinema, mm -hmm. and so yeah, reality bites. The question is, are, are are progressives feeling it, and can they land the ship here? Yeah, and it's not just Mansion and Cinema. We should say right, it, right. It, there's a lot of moderate Democratic senators who are anxious about how you pay for something like a $6 trillion reconciliation package. And, yeah. um, you know, Mark Warner, 
um, Senator Coons, Senator Carper, they're all going to have real questions about how you pay for something like this. Um, so it's not just Mansion and Cinema; They've got a lot of work to do to bring the entire caucus along. And, and don't underestimate the Republican windmill's ability. With a lot of Republican pals very happy to try to change the subject away from Trump and space lasers uh, to explain to the country that $6 trillion is one and a half times the cost of the Second World War. It's not a small thing. And that is very comfortable Republican territory to say, you know what? We had a brilliant trillion-dollar plan to bridges, internet for your kids, water, everything you care about. But Bernie Sanders and AOC and the squad are so liberal, they want to bankrupt the country instead. And Joe Biden folded like a chair That's who we, and go on full old-school offense, a thing which every Republican is taught starting in third grade. And that's going to turn up the pressure, which is why I think there's a high-stakes gamble here for Biden. But I think if he plays chicken with the left in the end, I don't think they're going to deny him that bipartisan bill because it's such a huge political victory to the hours if, he, if it blows up. Yeah. You know, I'm th- uh, Stephanie, I'm thinking of the thing. You and I, you and I were together during the uh, Affordable Care Act uh, fight, and I'm thinking about Nancy Pelosi. And that, back in 2010, you know, we lost that seat up in Massachusetts, as you painfully remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't have 60 votes to change the bill that the Senate had passed. The House had to pass the Senate bill. They hated the Senate bill. We were 20 votes short. And, you know, I watch Pelosi now. She's sort of flaying the White House a little. She's poking the White House. And it reminds me of how smart she is mm-hmm. uh, because her members need to see her doing Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Uh, as she tries to bring them over to the to the deal that they're going to have to support. Nobody is better at this than Pelosi. And that may be um, one of the best things that Biden has going for him here in terms of trying to make this thing cohere. A hundred percent. She knows exactly what she's doing. Now, of course, I do think that she wants a pretty sizable reconciliation bill to come over from the Senate. But politically, she is, you know, criticizing the White House, laying down red lines. Uh, but Nancy Pelosi is a pragmatist and a realist, and it, she knows how to deliver her caucus. So this is the beginning of what we're going to see over the, you know, this could be done in a matter of a month or six weeks um, of her trying to move her caucus towards some sort of a compromise with the Senate, with Senate Democrats, not just Republicans, but with Senate Democrats about yeah. what we're able to get through. And is it fair to say that she probably has a more challenging progressive revolt just because when there are about 90 members in the progressive caucus, their chairman is out really hitting the, uh, hitting the speakers on this. Uh, and uh, most of them are from very safe seats, so they're not as politically astute as maybe some of the senators are. So she's got the heavier lift, I think, internally to kind of tamp down the war hawks. And, uh, you know, again, go to the fundamentals. If you break it a in two pieces, Biden gets a big win on bipartisan infrastructure, and then you can have World War III going into the election on the progressive stuff versus not, and let the country decide. That's a pretty clean way to do it. I, I think in some ways, and the Republicans will attack on this, the progressives are being a little chicken. Why won't they fight for a clean shot at their agenda? Why do they have to wrap it around infrastructure to make it more popular than it is? Which one of the, one of the Democratic members actually admitted the other day. Uh, I think I think it was actually Elizabeth Warren said, without the popular infrastructure concrete stuff to wrap all the social things around, we may not get it through. Well, you know, let's let's have the fight. It's not bad. It's a good old school fight. You know, we're back to normalcy in politics. That's the nub of the issue right there. The fear that uh, this ship will leave port 
and the 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 the, the larger boat uh, will never get out of the dock. And there's a lack of trust, you know. There's a yeah. lack of trust between the progressives and 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 Mansion. I think that's why Mansion went out this weekend and said, "Yeah, I'll vote for reconciliation. It may not be the one you you know may not be as big as Bernie wants, but I will vote for a reconciliation bill." And at some point. You know, everybody's going to have to get in a room and 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 uh, have the discussion uh, face to face and uh, uh, and figure this thing out. But um, uh, but the and the other thing that's going to happen, and I'm sure that this this was discussed, uh, Stephanie, is um, that uh, the president's going to have to color within the lines here in his comments (laughs) on this. And keep leave the stuff uh, in the uh, thought box above his head that that belongs there. <laughs> yeah, let me, let me ask you guys about that. What is the working theory in the Democrat elite world of why Biden, who's been pretty good, went back to like early debate, but bad Biden and basically tripped over his shoelaces there during a high stakes moment? I, I was a little surprised. Well, look, I don't think Biden, first of all, you know, uh, Biden is Biden, right? He's an exuberant guy. Uh, he's always there. You know, you you knew this is this is priced into the stock, right? There are going to be those moments. He has been incredibly disciplined. I think in the exuberance of the moment, he 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 got this deal. It was very very good uh, negotiating on the part of his team and the members of the Senate who got it done. He understood the next obstacle was to get the progressives on board. And he, he, his instinct was to send a signal to them that I'm not going to leave you behind. Uh, he just overshot the runway. <laughs> yeah, a lot. I agree. What people love about Joe Biden is that he, he speaks his mind and he's you know, very real and how he gets out there. He was a little too real. <laughs> this time yeah. and it's shocked well, we're gonna switch him over to magic spoon we're send a box and we're <laughs> sharp for the next one it's, i want to talk about the other member of the administration here uh, the other half of the team kamala harris she has had a less good uh run here um had that trouble down at the in in guatemala in that interview with lester holt where she made an offhanded comment about going to the border then she went to the border and looked like she was forced to uh, go to the border rather than doing it on on her own, and you know I got a call from a reporter today right before we 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 uh, started recording, uh, who is writing a piece about her poll numbers trailing Biden's and about disquiet among Democrats. Um, Stephanie, um, is the what's going on with her, and uh, what advice would you give her? at this point to kind of right the ship? You know, X, I think a little bit of what's happening is unfair to the vice president. And, you know, we were in the White House at the beginning of the Obama administration, and I don't remember Vice President Biden facing this level of scrutiny. And, you know, she made one off remark in an interview after a very successful trip to Central America where she got some real deliverables. And that was completely overshadowed because of one remark about not going to the border. I don't think that's really fair. She has a very tough assignment. She's fixing a a crisis that at least five presidents before her haven't been able to fix. And it's going to take time. People should give her a little running room here uh, for her to to make some progress. Um, You know, at the same time, I, I don't know what's going on inside there. I don't know what, how those decisions get made. But after a remark like that, um, 
with Lester Holt and seeing how much controversy it caused, I wouldn't wait, wait, you know, a week or 10 days to get down to the border. You know, that mm -hmm. pressure is going to continue to build. You don't want to be forced into it. You need to go on your own terms. And it does look like she was forced into it. They should have gotten down there right away. It reminds me of, um, remember when, yeah, uh, it, I know where you're going. You know, yes. When yeah. the vice, vice president Biden came out for gay marriage on a Sunday, we moved pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, to for the president to come out for gay marriage uh, because we knew it was a matter of time and we needed to get to there first. We also learned a negative lesson in the spring of 2010, I think, with the oil leak in the Gulf. Right. And we didn't get the president down there mm -hmm. uh, fast enough. But Murphy, you know what we used to call uh, stuff like that, like what happened down there with that Lester Holt interview? We used to call that a call cutter moment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> get the fire extinguisher yeah I, I don't know something is going on there there is the worst monster in politics if you're in her position is the bad narrative monster and that godzilla has awakened because starting with her campaign there were some really good days and there were a lot of stumble bum days it's very uneven and it's the same pattern and once that starts to set you know you've also got staff defections going on a bunch of people leaving her office the washington casino of conventional wisdom is highly attuned to that kind of stuff and it starts to compound and amplify which is why to stephanie's point it's very important to be very adroit to spin the thing on a one-day dime, not so much to kill the story, although that helps, but also to show all these these you know bookies who are always making the odds of are you an incompetent fool is not gonna not gonna last. That no, no, we're on top of this. They didn't do that, so it, it festers worse. And all I can say is one magic word for people who doubt the power of a narrative setting in and get being hard to lose. And that magic word is potato. Dan Quayle, one stupid spelling bee photo op, and he was a moron for the rest of his political career. So I don't know who's in charge of ringing the alarm bell that we don't have our bleep together inside her world, but whoever that is should be hammering the red button now because this wet concrete is going to set after year one. And if that if that happens, then for sure she's got a primary if she runs in an open seat, if Biden doesn't run for a second term. There will be talk if he does run, he needs to energize with somebody else. There will be the racial dimension in the Democratic Party, which is a very tough thing. But, you know, it is a first-class train wreck, and, we're, you know, we're starting to hear the loose bolts on the wheels. So they better get out the wrench and tighten them fast. Or it could be her, too. It could be unfixable, which is always the worst thing. We're safe. The thing about the potato thing with Dan Quayle is... In I the, sense you know, a partisan attack. No, coming. no, I'm no. It's to... not a partisan attack. This is not a partisan attack at all. The things that stick are the things that reinforce a narrative. Like, there was questions from the beginning about Quayle, how smart was he, should he have been on the ticket, and so on. And so that kind of thing reinforces a narrative. And as you say, that the narrative is the setting concrete. And uh, she's got to she's got to break it up and change, right, right. That's my point. She, change the narrative. But she is a juggler who drops the ball, so that's what has to be fixed because there been yeah. there hasn't been a catastrophic one yet. But we know she's more likely than not to drop the damn bowling pin when she's doing her act, and that's got to be fixed. Yeah, and I think you know one of the concerns that you hear privately, not publicly, is that that act may be the center ring uh, come twenty twenty four. And, uh, it, you know, I must say, I don't think that they have done her a great deal of favor uh, by handing her her two big assignments were, the you know, the border and Central America. An assignment, by the way, that Vice President Biden had 
in the Obama administration and and understands is very, very hard. Uh, and then uh, the second one is this voting rights fight, uh, which is also very hard. And so, you know, she doesn't, they haven't handed her a big piece of the economic stuff. Yeah, uh, no, that's fair. Know. They gave her the toughest jobs, which is not really a loving act. Yeah, you want a car? We got a car out back you can have. It doesn't have <laughs> yeah. a carburetor. It doesn't have yeah. a carburetor, but you can drive it off the lot if you want. Yeah, there, there you go. Be a magician. All I know to kind of cap this as we, we move along is if this were a movie, we would cut from talking heads, talking about the problems, to Stacey Abrams unrolling a map of New Hampshire. Terry McAuliffe, uh, mm-hmm. who, who is likely to be reelected governor of Virginia. I wouldn't be surprised if, 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 if Biden decides not to run, uh, if there's a uh, you know, interest in him uh, in quarter, some quarters yeah, of the party. And he's got a nice card because he can say, I'm the most Biden-like to replicate the old formula. You know, I'm old, a little old white. school. I'm a, I'm a white dude. I know the identity course <laughs> yeah, will male. go crazy, but yes. it, that's how we won with Biden. Let's not throw away a winning game plan. There, You're right. It could be a white. The weaker she gets, the more people unroll that map in New Hampshire. Okay, then let's take a break right here, and we'll be right back. So, Murphy, you know that to prepare to spend an hour each week with a witty insightful guy like you i i need to get some sleep yeah you do need sleep all that guilt from all those yeah. liberal politicians you've foisted on america how do you do it how do you sleep well it was a choice between gummies and a better mattress i went with the mattress <laughs> i have found the key to better sleep and it's called helix sleep helix mattresses are incredible they sent me one and i sleep like a baby now that's what Bob Dole used to say after he lost New Hampshire. He woke up every two hours and cried. But I'm boom here all week. So yes. tell me about this miracle mattress because I've heard good things about it. I've heard you rave about the Helix Sleep mattress really changing your sleeping life. Yeah, because they tailor their mattresses to your particular needs. Helix has a quiz that takes you just a couple of minutes to complete and matches your body type, Adonis in my case, and sleep uh, <laughs> preferences on the perfect mattress for you. Everybody's unique and Helix knows that. So they have several different models to choose from. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattresses great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. Mattresses great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains. And even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-sized sleepers. I would love to plus-size my sleep. But anyway. (laughs) So isn't there a quiz you take or something so they zero in? I took the quiz. You know, I tend to move around a lot. Uh, I'm a restless sleeper, and they sent Guilt. me a, a mattress that uh, is really suited for that. That isn't disruptive. It's not. It's medium firmness. It it takes the moving around well. I, I don't wake my wife up anymore. So what I'm saying to you, Murphy, and everybody who's listening, if you are looking for a mattress, you should take the quiz. You order the mattress that you're matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door, shipped for free. It's really cool how it comes, by the way. You don't even need to go to a mattress store ever again. Oh, that's the best part. Those pl- it makes a used car lot look like the uh, Roman Senate. And you know what? Uh, I'm not the only one. I know that you highly prize my point of view, Mike, but I'm not the I only do. one who feels this way. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020. And by GQ and Wired Magazine, Helix has been recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving sleep. So I'm not alone in this. 
You know, all I know is a few weeks ago, our crack producer, Allison, told us, hey, we got a mattress client. And I, of course, said, how much are they paying? And you said, do I get a mattress? Because I can't sleep. And they shipped it to you. This is a real life story. And now, frankly, you won't pipe down about it. Helix this, Helix that. So what I would tell my (laughs) friends, if you want a mattress that will help you sleep, take the quiz. Go online. Do what Axe did. And check it out. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but trust me, you will. Helix even has financing options and flexible payment plans, so a great night's sleep is never far away. And get this, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash hacks. That's helixsleep.com slash hacks. Friends, I always thought David's greatest love was world socialism after his wife. No, world socialism is number three now. Helixsleep.com slash hacks is where you get the mattress that David Axelrod fell in love with. And I will take that lying down. Womp, womp, womp. So even as we speak, the uh, New York City Board of Elections is is po- it's poised to release the first round results of the primary last week, and uh, but it appears pretty likely that Eric Adams, former police captain, former state senator, the current Brooklyn borough president, is going to get elected mayor of New York, and he drew larger implications from his election saying that he was the face of the future of the democratic party so let's listen to that america is saying we want to have justice and safety and end inequalities stephanie there is something you know there will be lessons drawn from this he uh, eric adams was not uh, a the most uh, by far the most progressive candidate in that race in new york city uh, in fact he's a former republican uh, and uh, he ran on an explicit uh, platform that kind of uh, rejected the defund police uh, movement, uh, and it looks like he's going to win. Uh, are there lessons that Democrats, uh, if you're a strategist uh, for other campaigns, what, what do you take away from uh, Adams, and or is New York uh, a, a world onto itself and we shouldn't draw any conclusion? No, I think that, well, first of all, full disclosure, we worked on Maya Wiley's race, who's in the- So, in, so you better pretend that she's still in it. <laughs> well, she is still in it. It's all yeah. down to turnout. It's, and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's a, it's a jungle primary, so- um, They're doing this, uh, this ranked choice voting, so they're going to peel away layers of uh, voters. And yeah, we, we should explain that quickly. When you vote, you list your top five. And as your favorite choice falls off, your second or third choice becomes part of the count all the way down to the end. So there's some theory that the last fourth and fifth choices may be somebody else. I think statistically it's a real long shot. The odds of someone who has an 11-point lead, anything more than a five-point lead losing are like infinitesimal, like 2%. I mean, Adams does have bragging rights here. We interrupt this podcast for a bulletin from the Hacks on Tap newsroom. 
Uh, this is Axe. This is the hazard of uh, recording a show in the morning and a news breaking in the afternoon. But the New York City Board of Elections released the returns from the primary today with ranked choice voting. And Eric Adams continues to lead, but not by 11 points, just by two over Catherine Garcia, the former New York City sanitation commissioner who had been endorsed by the New York Times, by the New York Daily News, had uh, surged at the end of the campaign. Garcia, apparently on the strength of second place votes, has now closed the gap, and it will be decided by 124,000 or so absentee ballots that are yet to be counted. Board says we'll know the final numbers by mid-July. So there you have it. Now back to the conversation. But anyway, we we said it, Stephanie. You, the, the hope <laughs> still right, well, lives. You know, yeah. I, I, we were we were proud to work on that campaign. She was a terrific candidate. In terms of what the election means, if Eric Adams, this is why Precision Media does so well. By the way, Murphy, Stephanie never drops the ball. That is some very precise spin. I'm impressed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she is a very nice person. I disagree with her in everything, but she I got is. To She's know really her. talented. Yeah. No, green, yeah, green yeah. room. Which I, as a human, I like her. But in terms of uh, what does it mean if Eric Adams wins? First of all, he had a lot of institutional advantages. So it's always important not to overread these elections, but I think we can all agree that with a rising crime rate, especially in New York City, that a defund the police message is not a winning message. And Maya Wiley's message wasn't defund the police, but Eric Adams had a much more clear message on that issue. And he's a former police officer. And he's a former police officer, but he had also experienced a beating by police when he was younger. So he had this incredible story who saw both sides of it. Um, so his message was incredibly strong and, and he, he really nailed it in terms of helping it break through. Um, so don't overread it, but it doesn't take a genius to understand that as crime rates go up, defund police uh, messaging doesn't help. And I think that most Americans, regardless of whether you're in New York City or in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, probably agree with that. It was a fascinating race because, one, it is a big electorate. It is probably the biggest single in size, you know, Democratic primary progressive-leaning electorate in the country. And it was a rejection of that stuff. Now, I think there are local factors. The crime rate, I think, is part of it. Yeah. A kind of revulsion of Bill de Blasio's failures was part of it. And and under old-school politics, Adams had a great base. He was a borough president. Right. He had yeah. a good story. He was African-American. That's why I was always short Yang, won a few bets on that, because uh, the voters of color moved late in these primaries, particularly in New York. And we've kind of seen this happen before. But it's pretty impressive. And I think Democrats, I, I was on television on uh, NBC with a nice progressive who was pounding, oh, no, it was a matter of we didn't energize, you know, the magic. No, no, you got you to gotta wake up and smell the coffee here. Uh, the cop thing is not the easy winner, uh, that I think some people in progressive politics fought. I mean, Miley had, despite her brilliant campaign under the leadership of precision strategies, (laughs) hell, she had AOC's endorsement right in the middle of AOC land. Now I think endorsements are always massively overrated, but still it was a pretty good litmus test of that sort of messaging in a modern urban, large democratic electorate, uh, versus a little more traditional back to the old Tom Bradley days, the first African-American mayor of LA, uh, also an ex-policeman. And, you know, people, people like a mayor who stands for some stability, order, and competence. And I think the pieces all fit together for him. 
And he had a very diverse coalition for him. Working yeah. class yeah, voters, yeah. middle class voters, Latinos. He became the outer borough exactly, candidate. Exactly. And he, and he dominated African-American voters despite multiple black candidates. We should make a few points, though, here. One is, you, you know, you say the crime issue uh, uh, animated this race. Crime is up uh, 30% in big cities across the country. So this has national uh, implications. Donald Trump, uh, and I know we, we don't like to speak his name that often here, but he was out over the weekend and you know, in between his bleedings about the, uh, you know, the Martians coming in and changing votes in uh, in in Montana. Uh, well, he's, he's now backed up by the Pentagon on that Martian thing. So we, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to reread his comments because maybe he knows something we don't. <laughs> but he, uh, uh, you know, he said, uh, you know, he made a big law and order pitch. And I think you're going to hear a lot of Republicans doing that. What Adams is saying is we've got a better answer you know, which is a balanced approach uh, to this. Yes, support uh, safety, support uh, policing, but also support civil rights. And, um, you know, he may have hit he may have hit the sweet sweet spot. We'll see. Well, well, just real quickly, just don't underestimate that biography. You know, everybody is a liberal till they get mugged. And once you're a mugged white liberal, voting for an African-American cop with real experience is kind of your dream outcome. Because you can make a statement about diversity and you can also make sure that there's going to be a squad car going down your street once in a while. So he was, it it all kind of worked for him, I thought. But that cop thing was huge. This is, by the way, how your Democratic parents from Detroit explain what happened to you. Uh, so no uh, no i was never mugged my father went on the record the detroit news saying i yeah fell out of the stroller and luckily i was too young to sue but the price he paid was me becoming a republican speaking of republicans mike pence was out this week or last week at the reagan library and i thought his remarks were really uh interesting strategically let's listen to that and, and kick this around truth is There's almost no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. Uh, If the clip ran, you'd hear he got applause at the Reagan Library for that. But he also was at some conservative forums uh, recently, uh, Murphy, where he got booed and called a traitor. Uh, he's obviously he's he's made his bed. He's going to sleep in it. He knows that there's no crossing the Rubicon. Back, he praised Trump. Uh, I sh- should I say liberally? He uh, at this event, yeah. but he he but he he drew the line on on this issue of the election and the January sixth stuff. What is his level? Uh, he he polls well because his name is known. Uh, he's close to the evangelicals. Uh, is is Pence is Pence viable? Is Pence is Pence? What is Pence's standing relative to twenty twenty four? Well, he he has enough to be in the hunt, and they are out doing things. I, I'm reporting in from the Hacks on Tap underground bunker in New Hampshire, and uh, I think Pence definitely is trying to set up to run. I think he thinks is is. Uh, coalition would be traditional conservatives and evangelicals. So he, he doesn't want to give up any moral high ground. He knows he'll be up under that attack. So he's trying to build his perch. Uh, I think he's also doing what a lot of candidates want to do after an experience like this, which is kind of be himself. And it's clear he was uneasy, you know, his activity and he's paid a political price for it shows that. So 
I think you're going to see authentic Mike Pence. Now, I think it's going to be a hard run for him because he's kind of French vanilla ice cream. You know, he, he's not over, not Trump, <laughs> and he's not beyond Trump because he was in the middle of it all, yeah. and he's not pure Trump. You know, you, yeah. you, you've got others out there. I mean, we should yeah, he's hear viewed the as, from- He's viewed as Vichy French ice cream by some of the Republicans. His definition is clear. There's a, so sco- he's going- a scoop for you there. Oh, my God. Hang on for a minute while we all have a moment of silence for the death of the American pun. Um, but but let, let's listen to Nikki Haley, the most cynical person in Republican politics, who was out on the stump in Iowa to get kind of a little pre-primary taste of what they're doing. So Pence is doing conservative, good soldier, honest man, wouldn't go there on the 6th. Now, let's listen to what Haley, who's been on both sides of the Trump thing, is saying out in Iowa. Her speech centered on three big challenges she says America faces right now, stopping what she calls a rise in socialism, saving, quote, American culture, and stopping the U.S. from becoming, quote, weaker when it comes to foreign relations. Joe Biden has been a gift to every country that hates America and wants to hurt us. He's the polar opposite of Donald Trump. Yeah, there you go. So she has gone from pro-Trump to not sure about Trump. Now she's back to, if only we had another Trump. That's pure Iowa caucus uh, music there, and that's that's the hit she's trying to play, not nuanced at all. And she'll have competition. There will be 10 people saying that. Yeah, she actually had a 48 hours or so where she condemned Trump on the election stuff uh, and then got rebuked and came back she she's been uh stephanie more uh agile shall we say about trying to skate this terrain uh than anyone else remember she was ardently anti-trump when he ran for president and scrambled back and became his u.n ambassador and managed to be one of the few people left the administration uh you know in his good graces and and not under indictment or any other issue she's one of the few cabinet members that left that administration with her reputation intact um, and had a, uh, at least in the media narrative, had a reputation for doing what she thought was right and not always towing the party line. Now, she's completely done a reversal on all of that and said that she would vote for Trump again if he ran for president, um, that she's uh, supporting Trump. You know, basically, she's trying to, between what she's doing and what Mike Pence is doing, she's trying to take the Trump mantle away from Pence and win over those Trump supporters. If you just listen to what her rhetoric is in Iowa, she's got that law and order, be scared of the socialists, you know, um, uh, much harsher language than you're seeing out of a lot of other Republicans who may be in contention. So she's trying to win over those Trump supporters, of which there are many in Iowa, um, and not let Mike Pence get ahead of her. So she's she's very appealing in making that argument. She's going to be an interesting case because you talk to anybody who came up in South Carolina politics around her on the Republican side, they will say she is without a doubt the most ruthless and cynical person they've never known in politics, believes in very little. So the strength of that is this kind of ability to scuttle around like we're talking about. The weakness of it, and it's a disease that Marco Rubio had in his presidential race, no surprise she endorsed him. There was a, a kind of a, a lock there of cynicism. Is that you got to let that go, Trump. Murphy. No, no, I'm, 
Rubio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let me. The problem is when things go bad for Trump, she scuttles away a little. You know, he mm-hmm. gets indicted in New York or something. And then when things are going good or she perceives that, she'll scuttle back. And the scuttling, that lack of courage to take one thing and stand and fight it, will get you in the end. So we will see. She'll also be the identity candidate, which will be weird in the Republican primary. Um, we'll see. She's a helpful if she gets through. Oh, totally. The media will love her. Very helpful if she gets through. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. She'll have the Sergeant Schultz coverage from the media. Oh, she's reasonable, you know, blah, <laughs> blah, blah. But the true Nikki, those of us who've been around South Carolina, know that, like, bring two wooden stakes. <laughs> there you go. There's a little Republican hate for you. You know, you know all I can say. Send your mail out. to David Axelrod at the, the Chicago uh, Institute the, of Politics. Yeah, I'll, I'll pass it along. Her problem, her ultimate problem is uh, the old George Burns thing about show business you know all you all you need is sincerity and if you can fake that you've got it made <laughs> you're set yeah. i mean authenticity is the coin of the realm in presidential politics you have to have it to succeed and the question is in this big game of what's that game where you put your foot one here and one there and twister yes it's <laughs> this big game of twister uh she could end up falling on the authenticity scale we'll have a lot more to talk about relative to this comes the future. But before we go, we have to talk about the biggest campaign that's going on right now, which is the the, the yeah. Emmy campaign. Time for a Everybody's plug. talking let's, about let's, it. Let's give this a push here. It's well-deserved. So, Stephanie, I know I talked to you when you got this assignment in the first place, and you basically were faced with the idea of a convention that had been planned to be in person in Milwaukee, uh, and you had to rethink the whole thing. Um, tell me about that process, uh, because it turned out to be a real triumph uh, for for Biden. Well, first of all, thank you for bringing it up. And I think calling it a campaign is a little bit of an overstatement. Not here. <laughs> yeah. uh, this is hacks on tap. Believe <laughs> We're me. knocking on doors. I appreciate you guys bringing it up, though. It's a it's a long shot for uh, for us to get an Emmy. But, you know, we were encouraged to do it. So we're giving it a try and, it, and it's fun. Um, so, you know, uh, a year and a half ago, we were, we were putting the pieces together, beginning to put the pieces together for the Democratic convention, and the convention was going to look very conventional. Yeah. In Milwaukee, tens of thousands of people coming, big stage, speaker after speaker, uh, and it pre- became pretty clear in March and April of 2020 that that wasn't going to be the case. Um, and we went through several different iterations. Okay, we won't have a big convention like we normally do. We'll just bring the delegates there and minimize the risk that way. Uh, and then the health experts told us that wasn't possible. And then we said, okay, it'll be a hybrid. Uh, the delegates won't come, but we'll have our main speaker speak from there. So we still have a presence in Wisconsin, because as you remember, Wisconsin was a critical state in the blue wall yeah. that we had lost in 2016. And this was a big part of the strategy of winning it back in 2020. Um, and then, you know, two weeks before the convention, we were told we couldn't even do that. So it was a, it was a evolving process. What we knew we didn't want and was our mantra, um, uh, every day in planning that convention is that it was not going to be a zoom call. So we, uh, we assessed all of the different technologies out there. We created some of our own technologies and pulling hundreds of different feeds in from across the country. Uh, we knew that we needed to shorten the program. We couldn't have six hours of 
politician after politician speaking um, to camera, people would just shut it off. I mean, we have a hard enough time sitting in those halls listening to that. Can you imagine yeah. watching it at home for six hours? Uh, and we needed to, to tell a story. We needed to do it a little differently because we were ultimately producing a TV show at that point. And, you know, um, if you don't have people applauding you in front of you when you're giving a speech, what is it that you can do to connect to people watching? The only thing you can do is, is to, to emotionally con connect. So that's what uh, we focused on in telling that story. What was the emotional connection we were trying to have with the people watching? That's why you've had people like Christine Urquiza, uh, whose father died from COVID, um, who wrote an op-ed uh, you know, blaming Trump and uh, really leaders on both sides of the aisle for the response uh, to COVID. That's why we had... Uh, Brandon Harrington, the young boy who stuttered, who yeah, met, uh, boy, that was so moving. It was so moving, and that emotional he was the best single moment in my view. Yeah, he yeah, was. No, Absolutely. he was terrific. I thought the woman killed my dad around was a little over the top, but boy, he was great. So it was that. That was what we were trying to do. What's the emotional thread that we're pulling through? And you know, we had we decided to shrink it to two hours a night, which I think was one of our best decisions. Yeah. Um, we uh, got some great hosts, Julia Louise Dreyfus um, yeah. and uh, Eva Longoria and others uh, to help be the connectors through the program. And it was really, you know, looking at it at, like a TV show, a beginning, a middle yeah. and an end. Yeah. We had five acts per night um, and pulled a thread through each of those acts. So, yeah. but the truth is acts um, and Murphy, even, um, the day before the convention, we didn't know exactly how it was going to play. We didn't know exactly how people were going to receive it. But Stephanie, that is one of the reasons why you guys are so deserving because you were on a high wire. This yeah, wasn't a pre-produced deal. Oh, you no. were on a it high was, wire for was, four uh, nights and you told a great story. Yeah. See, yeah. that's the extra credit. It, it was a circumstance that kind of forced the reinvention and kudos for a modernizing reinvention. But it was done in the middle of a really tough period so listen hollywood all you got to do <laughs> is vote to nominate a liberal anti-trump convention now how hard is that for you we're talking right in the wheelhouse here and, and it's well earned okay and also let's remember it's it's not just the convention it's the inauguration too it's oh, celebrating right. america right. exactly all right. Okay. Yeah. All right. the event at the lincoln memorial which was a, a really fun thing to produce all right. Well, get your votes in the email or the mail. And speaking of mail. <laughs> you know, if a if a transition could actually murder somebody by like falling off a building with a thud, that was it. That was incredible. And hey, hackaroos, don't forget if you have a question for the hacks and our special guest hack of the week, you can send it to us. And we actually read these things. And we're interested in what you have to think. It's hacks on tap at gmail.com. That is hacks on tap at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can even click a little thing in the lower right hand corner and torment a friend by sending them a link so they can listen to and hopefully get shamelessly addicted. We read your comments and we appreciate what you have to say. Okay, here we go. Mailbag question one. So Stephanie, Jason says, I was struck by a quote at the end of a recent New York Times article outlining Eric Adams' political strategy. Social media does not pick a candidate. People on social security pick a candidate. 
As the limits of progressive political power continue to become apparent, is it possible that there might be some reevaluation of the utility and reliability of social media as a political tool, or will large media organizations and consultants <clears throat> continue to stovepipe <laughs> the views of a very small number of people on Twitter and thereby continue to miss the middle class forest for the elite trees? Wow. Yeah, man. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> That's a good question. Well, you know, and I think you guys would agree with me. It's not one or the other. It's both. You have to use every possible tool to communicate to voters, and you have to understand how they get their information. 40% of people now get their news information from Facebook and don't watch the evening news or read papers. They just rely on Facebook. So you have to meet them where they are. So there's no one tool that is going to win an election. It's a, it's a multiple, like just, you know, the way I describe the Obama 2012 campaign is that we had all of these different spokes going out of the center of the wheel to communicate with people on their terms, whether it was door knocking or social media or earned media or phone calls or videos, you have to figure out how people want to be communicated with and adjust your strategy. So it's not a, it's not a black and white situation. You know, you're totally right. I'm a nerd. I built my first computer with a soldering iron. I'm that old. But I always say a great sign of a bad campaign is that 90% of the talk is about the plumbing, not the water. Because message is everything. And there are a million cool ways to distribute it. And some are more efficient than others. There's a lot of cool stuff you can optimize. But if a campaign is meeting all day about, hey, there's a new kind of uh, digital sign that'll read a license plate and target the car. But the the content's no good. It doesn't matter. I mean, I remember, Axe, we were at some panel after 2008. And I said then, and I believe now, and I don't think you disagreed with me. You can now if you uh, believe so, that Barack Obama would have won in 2008 without the internet. Because the message was superior and people follow and they get it. Now, the internet helped. It was a huge amplifier. You guys did amazing things with it. But we overestimate the tactical trickery, as important as it is, and forget about the core stuff. Probably we needed the money that the internet produced for us in that campaign. It was, you know, it was a valuable thing, uh, at, particularly at the beginning. And it, it fed on itself and it became, you know, hugely important. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Message is, is the key. And, and Jason, understand, uh, you don't decide who to talk to uh, based on social media. Social media is a tool that you use to talk to people. There's data that's valuable, valuable but there are other means of uh, understanding who it is that you're trying to reach and should be reaching and what messages uh, resonate with them. So Ty, uh, let's see, for Mike Murphy, do you think the GOP can become the party of optimism and the future instead of the party of reacting, looking backwards? I hear a lot of comments even on the podcast, wow, about communism and unions and snowflakes. I don't know who he's talking about, but I rarely hear about a building a better future. Are you are hope and optimism as principles only found on the left these days, or do you see a way for the right to turn things around? Great question, you snowflake. Um, <laughs> I actually don't throw the snowflake thing around. Maybe not enough. It's true. I, I'm an old uh, Soviet area studies guy. I actually was in Russia pre-Gorbachev. I was there the day they announced Andropov is the new uh, um, leader. And so I can't resist peppering the stuff with old commie analogies. And uh, <laughs> as I like to say, when the red star fits, wear it, comrade, Axelrod. But I do that mostly for levity. You are right in your assertion, dear correspondent, that optimism wins campaigns. 
most of the time. You can run a grievance campaign. It's been very successful when you have a grievance country, when people who say things are very much on the wrong track. And we've had a lot of that. Bernie was a grievance candidate of one flavor. Trump, of course, was the master cancerous grievance candidate. But I hope the Republican Party does move back to a message of opportunity and growth and breaking down barriers so people can succeed in the American dream, no matter where they're from. I think that is our best winning hand. That is our best policy. And that's where we've got to get. It's going to be a battle in the short term to get there because both parties have found the grievance weapon can work and it becomes self-reinforcing in the electorate. But ultimately, I prefer, and why I'm so virulently anti-Trump and anti-populist knuckleheadery, I prefer the Reaganite message, the Jeb Bush message of opportunity for everybody uh, and an optimism about America. So, yeah, that's the recipe. We got to get back to it if we want to become a national governing party again. All right, our final mega question from Tyler for Brother Axelrod. Tyler writes, I'm a 20-something congressional staffer who works in the field for a moderate Republican member, but my ideological home has always been within the Democratic Party. Give me one sec. Tyler, we need to look into this and the internal security. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we have no. a traitor in our midst, Tyler. You fight for that moderate member. We need, I'm thinking we need about more the three, reasonable people. three members he might be talking about. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no, exactly. We've just probably, probably, uh, Tyler, if I were you, change your name and go into hiding. But here's the question. So he works for a <laughs> or member. Or is he really named Tyler? Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. Ted Cruz. Crafty. Uh, so anyway, Tyler's ideological home has always been, he writes, within the Democratic Party. I hope to marry my political experience to campaigning for candidates that are more ideologically in line with my principles. In other words, abandon the GOP. What is the best way for me to go about pursuing campaign or political work on the Democratic side of this midterm elections? I would say step one, stop working for a Republican. But you guys, you tell them, how do you crack Democratic world? Yeah, it's an interesting, that is an interesting journey to make. But the truth of the matter is that there are a lot of uh, sort of center-left, moderate uh, Democratic members of the House. Remember in 2018, the, the vast majority of those members came from swing districts uh, and are, uh, are, 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 you know, more moderate in their uh, approach, a lot of them in suburban areas. Uh, and they're going to have, uh, you know, there's going to be uh, a lot of contests uh, in these places this year. I mean, the suburbs will continue to be a, uh, a a battleground where Republicans will try and claw back and Democrats will try and hold on to what uh, they have. And, you know, I would just look at the roster of those races and, uh, and, and inquire uh, of them how you might get involved. The DCCC probably uh, could help you, but they will ask you uh, yeah. exactly they're going to ask you about your journey, Tyler. And uh, you know what? But here's what I feel. If a kid who's working for a Republican member decides that that is not where he wants to be, I think that should be encouraged. I think that should be embraced. I think it's okay to have your first job and then evolve to follow your heart. The other thing I tell you, Tyler, is the smart Dems operatives will understand that somebody who has field experience with Republican voters, suburban Republican, speak center Republican is a useful tool for the Democrats. Speaking AOC 24-7 does not grow their pie. So you have some skills. I would end your Republican career before you try to start your Democratic one. Don't be too clever by half, but follow your heart. And stay in politics. Exactly. Cutter agrees. I do. <laughs> All right. Absolutely. 
So All send right. your resume to both of them. Leave me alone, traitor. I kid you. I kid you, Tyler. I'm staying in for the fight as hopeless as it becomes. And Stephanie, let's wrap up by thanking you for improving Hacks on Tap as you always do by guesting with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Always yeah. love coming on this. And uh, keep the campaign going. We're, we're all for you. <laughs> Hollywood. You. Yeah, we're 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 gonna organize. David knows a few people in Chicago who specialize in finding votes overnight in the hundreds. So send them a <laughs> yes, roll of hundreds. We can and multiply your. We can multiply yeah. your support in no time. We got to get Ram in on this. All righty. Good luck <laughs> okay, in that guys. pursuit. Thanks. We'll talk to you next time. All right, brother.